chapters 24 and 25 of Genesis is what we're going to look at today. Continuing on with our, our study through the book of Genesis, you can go open there. We're going to look at some things in a, in a few minutes in those chapters. And we're going to do some flipping through the scriptures today, so, so get ready today to be doing some flipping around. Um, in chapters 24 and 25, we looked at chapter 24 last week. We're going to do a real brief review there. But chapter 24 and 25, um, we see three new characters introduced into the family line of Abraham. And remember, we've been looking at this for like a year now. God has switched gears in, in the function of his function with humanity. He's going from ministering, to the, ministering through basically the world as a whole to selecting one guy and starting a nation out of him. And out of that, na- out of that nation, he's, gonna, he's going to create, a, create this country that through that nation will come who? He hung on a cross. His name is Jesus, okay? And so God's got this long-term plan, and it started with a guy. Who's the first guy in the line he picked? Abraham. And so now we're looking at Abraham. Last week he looked at his, he got a white for his her son Isaac. And this development of this family line that's going to be developed into the nation of Israel. And uh, in chapters 24 and 25, there's an introduction of three new characters into the family line. And they're important. And these are the, the people that God is working through. And oftentimes works through in ways that the people, the characters, would not have intended or thought. And he's working through them to develop this nation of Israel. In chapter 24, we met Rebecca. We met her. She is the, the new wife of, of Isaac, um, Abraham's son. And uh, we're going to review her story in a minute. And then in, verse, in chapter 25, we meet Jacob and Esau, who are the sons of Rebekah and Isaac, these twin boys. And uh, so these are people who now enter into the story of the development of the family line of Israel. We're going to learn some things as we look at them. And what I want us to look at today in their lives of these people is... is, is um, is to pay attention as we look at them, as a springboard into a topic, pay attention to how God selected them and developed them and also their connection to their personal involvement, their responsibility to follow in God's leading in their, in their lives. And we're going to look at these people and how God worked those things together in their stories. We're going to look at their stories first, and then we're going to transition. We're going to use that as a launch pad. We're going to transition into one particular topic that I think these stories stir up. And this is what I hope happens for you as you read the Bible. I hope as you're reading Scripture at times, you look at things and you go, I don't like that, or that's, that, that'll make sense, or that's uncomfortable. And you're going to find, as we look at this, you're going to see some things that are going to cause some personal dissonance. You're going to say, I don't really like the way that's panned out. And then you're going to wrestle with that, and you're going, to, you're, going to, you're going to try to say, God, how does that make sense? And as you do that, God is going to bring clarity into your life, into how he interacts with the lives of people. And, and so that's what we're going to try to do today as we interact with these stories. So in chapter 24, as way of review, um, what we talked about last week, but some of you weren't here... We, we met Rebecca, this um, lady who became Isaac's wife. And what I want to just explain to you again and briefly about, about Rebecca is look at the story of how God intervened in the selection of this, of this young lady to enter into the family line um, that he's developing that would become the nation of Israel. We understand that the story that Abraham, the, early, the first patriarch, he's getting old, and he knows that Isaac, his son, his son of promise, remember? The son he had when he was 100 years old, the son he almost sacrificed on the mountaintop, and God said, don't kill him, and he provided a ram in place. That son that he's getting older to, and that he's now about 40 years old, and that he needs a wife. 
And so he makes a deal with his, his most trustworthy servant. Remember, he, he has a servant put his hand under his thigh as he's sitting in a chair and vow a vow that he'll go back to the homeland, to Mesopotamia, and he will find a relative, someone from the family, and that he will bring him back to Isaac. So Isaac can marry him, and he forbids him to take Isaac or ever let Isaac go back to, the, to his homeland. Because he understands that God made a promise that, that he would build his family, but he'd build a family in the promised land. And so he sends his servant with ten camels loaded with goods and gifts back to the homeland to say, now you go find the wife. So the guy loads up his ten camels with gold and, and all these gifts and he heads back to the, to the promised land. As soon as he comes in, the story told us that he gets there and he comes to a well to have his camel watered, remember? And he sits up there and he prays kind of a crazy prayer. He says, God, I don't know what lady you want for my master's son, but I tell you this, God, if I ask a lady to give me a drink of water and she says, okay, I'll give you a drink and I'll water all your ten camels, which is a lot of water, that's the one for me. And so he's looking and he sees this young lady, Rebecca, coming. He doesn't have a clue who she is. And he says, hey, can I have a drink of water? And she says, sure, and not only that, let me get water for all your camels. And she does that, and he goes, man, this must be the one. And he asks her, who are you? And she begins to explain who she is, and he goes, not only is she the one, she's a distant relative of my master Abraham. And she says, can I go to your house? And he goes to the house, and he begins to tell the story to her father and to her brother about how he got there. And they listened to the story. Remember what they concluded? They concluded, this must be of God. And so they say to this daughter, who they love, go with this stranger that we've never met before. Because this is God's plan. And they say, do you want to do it? And Rebecca says, yes, I do. And she hops on a camel with a couple of her servants and heads out for the 400-mile trek back to the, to the promised land and, be, and eventually becomes the wife of Isaac. Now, as we review that story, you know, remember, one of the great things about, Bibles, about the Bible is it gives us an, an overview of an entire span of time. And we get to just see the highlights. And when I look at the highlights of that story, you look at the highlights of that story, what we surely see is that it is obvious from the story that God had intervened in the events of the selection of Rebecca. Right? Is there any way we, can, we, we could not conclude that? God intervened in the events. He answered the pr- servant's prayer. The servant said, well, God, here's how I want to know the right one. Have her answer in this way, and she does it. That he led him not only just to the country, but right back to Abraham's relatives, and that his relatives were so convinced um, that Rebecca's, that was of God, that Rebecca's family said, you go ahead with a total stranger we've never met before, hop on a camel and go to some place and become a wife. And remember they prayed for her? They prayed, you become thousands and ten thousands and nations. They just said, you go be blessed in this. They were convinced that God was in it. In Rebecca's story, we can clearly see the hand of God at work. He worked through all of these willing, prayerful people. Right? I'm not stretching it? Okay. Let me hear somebody say right. right. Okay, you're awake. So, now take that story and file it away for a minute. Just put it over here on the side, but don't forget it. Because now we're going to go to chapter 25. In chapter 25, we, we find that Rebecca and Isaac, um, after they're married for a while, she can't have a baby. And then they, her husband prays for her and she gets pregnant. And as she's pregnant, um, eventually she has, she has twin boys. Remember what their names are? Esau and Jacob. Esau's older, Jacob's younger. And so in the story of Esau and Jacob that we're going to read about in just a second, we're going to see something a little bit different than we saw in chapter 24. We're going to see the hand of God at work 
in these lives, but even before these two were born, he makes comments about them. He says, this is what they're going to be like. Or in the chapter before, there's these willing participants who are praying and seeking God and trying to say, is God in this thing? And then we come to chapter 25 and we just see a couple guys who are born and, and God just says, these are things about them, even before they're born. And he wasn't necessarily working through obedient, willing, or prayerful people. So grab your Bible and turn to chapter 25 of Genesis with me. And we're just going to look at two verses to start. Chapter 25, verses 22 and 23. This is, this is um, you know, she's praying for a son. Verse 21, she says, Isaac prayed to the Lord on behalf of his wife because she was barren. And the Lord answered him, and Rebekah, his wife, conceived. And we say, praise the Lord. Verse 22. But the children struggled together within her, and she said, if it is so, why then am I in this way? In other words, she's saying, if this is a blessing from God, how come I have this problem inside of me? How come I'm having all this turmoil inside of me with these babies if this is the blessing of the Lord? So she went to inquire of the Lord about it, it says in verse 23. And the Lord said to her, Two nations are in your womb, and two peoples will be separated from your body. And one people shall be stronger than the other, and the older shall serve the younger. Now what do we find here? We find something interesting. We find that God, in his foreknowledge, knowing what tomorrow holds, knew who would rule over whom. He knew which boy would become the one that would be the ruler, and then the next step is he would not only become the ruler, he would be the next of the leader, he would be the one through whom the family line would descend. That the younger son would be the, the, the patriarch number two in the list. It would be Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. Number three in the list, rather. That it would not be Abraham and Isaac and Esau. That God knew from the very beginning, through his foreknowledge, who would be the leader, who would be the, the ruler, who would be the one through which the family line would continue all the way to Jesus. Now the New Testament makes a comment about this exact story that even expands this concept a little more, expands it in a way that to a lot of times it's uncomfortable for us to read. So grab your Bible and turn to the book of Romans with me. Because it says some things about these boys that we scratch our heads and say, Romans chapter 9, we scratch our heads and say, I don't think I like that. I don't think I understand that. And that's okay, because we're going to wrestle with this today, we're going to come to the end and say, ah, I kind of understand. Romans chapter 9, verses 10 and 11, talking about this story that's listed in Genesis 25, it says this in Romans 9, verses 10 through 13. It says, and not only this, but there was Rebekah also, when she had conceived twins by one man, our father Isaac. For though the twins were not yet born and had not yet done anything good or bad, so that God's purpose according to his choice would stand, not because of works, but because of him who calls, it was said to her, that you remember this was the result of her prayer, the older will serve the younger, in verse 13, just as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. So it makes a comment about him and says that God chose one before the other. He even took them out of order. And it says, I loved one, but I didn't like the other one. And says this about them even before they're born. And here's the thing I want us to, to grasp today, that God had a plan in place even before these two little boys were born. 
But it's interesting here that if we go back to the story and we look at, at the father and the mother in the story of these two boys, that the father, this godly man Isaac, must have believed that that wasn't true. Must have believed that Esau would be the son to carry on the family line because, number one, he was the oldest. And it says later in the text in Genesis 25 that not only was the oldest, but he was his favorite. You know, and I know parents aren't supposed to have favorites, but it said that, that each parent had a favorite. And his favorite was Esau. He was a hunter. I understand why your, hunt, your favorite would be a hunter. I can understand that, you know. And so it was his favorite. But Rebecca, his wife, who had prayed to the Lord and the Lord spoke to her, knew from before birth that God had selected Jacob and even understood his idea, Jacob I loved and Esau I hated. And what we see here is we see God then in the story that before she, when she's pregnant, this prediction, this prophecy, this revelation comes forth. But then in the working out of their lives, we see that their lives begin to validate and prove what God had said would be true before they were ever born. The first thing we see in Esau's life is that, that Esau sells his birthright to Jacob for a bowl of beans. Grab your Bibles again and flip back to chapter 25 of Genesis. That, that there's this prophecy before they're born that says the younger will serve the older, but that doesn't make sense in Jewish culture. Because in Jewish culture, there was this birthright. There was this right of being the firstborn that says, as the firstborn, I carry on the family line. Not only that, I get all the money. Everything is mine. And everybody else gets a little something, but I get the bulk. I'm the leader. I'm the one to, to carry on the name. And it comes now to to the living out of their stories, and we see this prophecy saying that's not going to happen. Look at, look at chapter 25, starting in verse 27. It says, But the boys grew up, and Esau became a skillful hunter, a man of the field, but Jacob was a peaceful man living in tents. Now Isaac loved Esau because he had a taste for game, but Rebekah loved Jacob. When Jacob had cooked stew, Esau came in from the field and was famished. And Esau said to Jacob, Please let me have a swallow of that red stuff there, for I am famished. Therefore his name was called Edom, and Edom means red. But Jacob said, First sell me your birthright. And Esau said, Behold, I am about to die. So of what use then is this birthright to me? And Jacob said, First swear to me. So he swore to him and sold his birthright to Jacob. So we see the plan that was prophesied before he was ever born be beginning to happen. All of a sudden now, he gives him, he says, I'll give you my birthright. I give you the place of, of the firstborn. And then also later in his life, we see that not only does he get the, the birthright, but later in his life, there's a scheme that's hatched between Jacob and Rebekah. Remember the scheme? We won't read it right now, but you can look at it in chapter 27 later. There's a scheme that they say, you have the birthright, and, and, and mom knows in her heart that God said the younger is going to serve the older, and I don't know if, if she's scheming and trying to make it work or whatever, but we see that she says, now you got the birthright, but you also need the blessing. See, in the culture, there was something else. The father would lay his hand, and he'd bless his children, and the father's blessing of, to the oldest one would be a special blessing, and that would, in, in essence, impart this blessing to carry on the family line. But what they did is they schemed and, and um, Isaac's getting old and he can't see very well and he's feeble and he's in bed and, and Jacob and, and uh, Rebecca come up with this plan and they remember what they do, they take, they take fur and they put it on his neck and on his hands and they dress him in clothes from the field so he smells like out, being out in the field. And they come and they say, Father, bless me. 
and he, he comes and he, he lays his hands on Jacob and he gives him the blessing of the firstborn, making him the heir of the family line. Now what we see in this story, remember back to the first story of the choosing of Rebekah, and then this story we've summarized. What we see again in this story is that God's hand is at work in the affairs of people, right? We're seeing that clearly. God's got a plan. He set it before they were born and all this has worked out and there was players in it and I don't really think they necessarily thought God's directing me this way today but they were players or pawns in the story and it comes to work out what God said would happen and so we see that God's hand is at work in the affairs of people and that God knew what was going to happen and he said it was going to happen and it happened just like he said it was going to happen. Now you understand the two stories. Now, as I read those two stories, it causes me a problem. I hope it causes you a problem. Because it brings up this huge question in my heart. A question that I think you should wrestle with. One that I wrestle with. One that people have been wrestling with, literally theologians and average everyday Christians have been wrestling with for thousands and thousands of years. And here's the question. Do we have a free will to do what we want to do in our lives? Or... Are we just some kind of spiritual robots living out a predetermined script written by God? Did these people have any part to play in it? Did did they have a choice to say, I freely can do what I want to do? Or were they just programmed robots living out this script and God just said, I select you to do this and I select you to do that? You know, that's a topic that this that these stories stir up. And I hope when you read the Bible, you see those things in there, you go, how does that make sense? Because when I read this, that's what I see. I'll admit to you something today. This is a tough topic. It's not one we're going to figure out completely today. But I think it's one we can come to some conclusions about today that will make us very peaceful about it. You know, in fact, I believe this is a topic which in some ways is completely beyond our human comprehension. And I think that's why there's always been a lot of controversy about it. You know what? I'm comfortable in saying something when it comes to theology with the Lord and just walking with the Lord. The scripture says this, His ways are above our ways as the heavens are above the earth. In other words, He's so infinite we're not going to get it. You know, there's some things, it's, it's alright to say I don't know. It's alright to say this is the best I understand it and be okay with that. However, on the other side, there is something that we, this is something that we need to wrestle with as we mature as believers. You know, one thing is we can rest and just say, that's what I see. The other thing is we say, let's, let's wrestle with this thing for a while. Because as we wrestle with it, we come to the understanding of how God works in our lives. Because here's the key. How God worked with them is a reflection on how God works with you and me. Anybody live in their life in such a way that you say, it's not working out the way I thought it would work out? Hello? As we understand how God works, it helps us to understand. Sometimes God's got a plan and he's working out in a different way. And I really thought it would be this way. My oldest son would be the family line. But God says, no, I'm working it out a different way. All for his glory and for the benefit of the people involved. You know, this is something we need to wrestle with. And as we wrestle with this, what I want us to do today for the rest of our time is idea of do I have an option or don't I have an option I want to narrow this down to just a focus on just the idea of one coming to Christ for salvation. Do I have a choice or don't I have a choice? Just narrow it down instead of do I, you know, do I buy a Chrysler or do I buy a Chevy? You know, to 
to just, do I have a choice? Did God just select me or am I part of the process when I came to Christ's salvation? Do we or do we not have a choice? You know, are we simply selected while other people are rejected? Or is there this call sent out to all and that everyone can come to God and become a child of Christ by calling on his name? Grab your Bibles again. I told you you're going to flip to some scriptures today. Flip to the New Testament in the book of Ephesians. And I'm going to challenge you as we do this, what we're going to do the rest of our time today. Do not mentally unplug halfway through. Because if you do, this is what you're going to say. Well, Pastor Mark said this. I'm going to say, did you not listen to the second half? Okay? Because we're going to have to deal with two different aspects here. And you're going to have to see how they interrelate. And uh, if you hear half of it, you're going to go, well, he said that. And I'm going to say, I didn't say that. Oh, that's exactly what you said. Well, did you hear the other side? You know, yes, you can have a candy bar, but not till after supper. What do the kids hear? Yes, Dad said I can have a candy bar. You know, so don't do that today. Ephesians chapter 1. Um, let me give you an explanation of the, of the first chapter of Ephesians first before we get into it. In verse 3, we have this general statement about God's blessing. Let's just look at verse 3, chapter 1. It says, Blessed be the God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in heavenly places in Christ. So it's a general rule, a general statement about the blessings of God. Saying, He has blessed us with every type spiritual blessing in heavenly places in Christ. And then in verses um, 4 through 14, he goes on to give some specific examples of blessings that are given to the children of God. Okay? That's the idea of chapter 1 of, of Ephesians. Now let's look at just two verses that are talking about some blessings. Verses 4 and 5. Verses 4 and 5 are talking about some, about some blessings of, of being with Christ seated in heavenly places. Following me so far? Verse 4. He says, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself, according to the kind intention of his will. Now, verse 4, the, the Apostle Paul is writing of one of the greatest of all spiritual blessings that we can ever receive. It's a term that they use in theological circles called the idea of election. Being elected, being selected. Election refers to God's choice of those who believe in Christ. And understand this, if you know Jesus, this is awesome. How wonderful it is to know if we're a child of God that God chose you on purpose. Look at the person next to you and say, you're no mistake. God chose you on purpose. It's hard for some of you to say that. It was hard for some of you to turn next to you and say something. You're not a mistake. God chose you on purpose. How wonderful it is to know that God elects us. And verses like Ephesians chapter 1 tell us that people have been elected or they have been chosen by God. It says here from the foundation of the world. Now, am I misquoting anything here? No, it's Bible, right? It's fact. It can't be overlooked. It can't be explained away. Correct? The Gospel of John says something similar. It says it just like this. It says, No one can come to me, that's Jesus, unless the Father who sent me draws him. So it says God is the one who's active in the, in the situation of coming to Christ. It's an, elect, it's an election. Scripture makes it clear that God's hand is involved in choosing or electing people to be saved. That God does the drawing. God does the choosing. 
And if you as a, as a Christian have been, you're a believer, you need to rejoice in that. You need to wake up every morning and say, God chose me today. You need to wake up every day and say, God's got a plan for me today. I'm not junk. I'm not, I'm not just drifting through life. God chose me to walk with him. Amen? Amen. Amen. Now, does it stop there? I'm going to say no. Does it stop there? No. Because Scripture also plainly teaches, plainly teaches, underline it, plainly teaches, that man has a very real part to play in their salvation. It very clearly teaches us. Not earning it, we can't earn our salvation. Not deserving it, because we don't deserve our salvation. But receiving our salvation, or accepting our salvation. The most famous verse maybe in the Bible, John 3.16. For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son, that whosoever believes in Him shall not perish, but have eternal life. Whoever believes in Him shall then, it's a result of believing. We see here that man's response to God's gift of Jesus is needed for salvation. That God gave Jesus to man, for God so loved that He gave, and man believes or trusts in Him, and that results in salvation. Grab your Bibles again and turn back to the book of Romans. Romans chapter 10. Verses 9 through 13. Look at what it says here, Romans 10, verse, verse 9. That if you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, what's it say? You will be saved. And did you see that, the second word in the thing, verse 9, and if, it's called a conditional sentence. If then, that's a conditional sentence, right? If you do this, then it will happen. If you confess with your mouth, Jesus says, Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you could put the word, then you will be saved. For with the heart a person believes, resulting in righteousness, and with the mouth he confesses, resulting in salvation. For the scripture says, whoever believes in him will not be disappointed. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all, abounding in riches for all who call on his name. Verse 13, for whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. Right? Verse 9, confession and belief. If you can believe and you confess, then you shall be saved. Confession and belief are part of the process. Verse 13, it says, whoever, or some of your verse translations say, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord. Whoever or everyone who calls in the name of the Lord will be saved. And you can then, it's the right conclusion. And those who don't, won't. That makes sense? If you, if you confess and believe and confess, you will be saved. And if you don't believe and confess, you won't be saved. That it says, there's a broad call to all people everywhere. It says, whoever calls in the name of the Lord shall be saved. Now, here's where people for thousands of years, and maybe you sitting in your chair, are having a, a struggle with this. You say, number one, does Scripture teach that God elects, that He chooses people to be saved? Does it? Yes. Does it? Jacob I loved and Esau I hated. Does it teach that God elects and chooses people? Yes. Does Scripture teach also, that man has a free will in choosing to accept or reject God's gift of salvation, to either call on the name or not call on the name. Yes, 
It teaches that. So here's the problem. How do we put those two ideas together? How do we put those two concepts together? And I would say this. It's all about one word. It's all about perspective. It's all about perspective. It's all about God's perspective versus our perspective. Follow me on this. It's a coin. Matter of fact, this coin reminds me of my cruise. I got this on a cruise last year. Last year I watched a Super Bowl on the deck of a cruise ship in San Juan, Puerto Rico. And God is calling me back to watch a Super Bowl on the deck of a cruise. I'm telling you, it was six degrees this morning. And I'm saying, hon, we're supposed to be on the deck of a cruise ship. I don't think it's going to happen. But it's a coin. It's, this is a, it's a, Caribbean, a Caribbean $1. John, I want you to tell me, what do you see here? You need glasses? Yeah, I do. Can you tell you what you see? Uh, 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 yeah, somebody. A person, a woman? Yeah. You know who that woman is? Can you see? Fuzzy. Queen Elizabeth. It says right on the coin. It's Queen Elizabeth. Okay. Queen Elizabeth's on this coin. Right? Queen Elizabeth, you saw it? You read it? What do you see on that coin? A boat. No, they saw Queen Elizabeth. Is that a, what's that? What is that? It's a ship. What is that? Yeah. Queen Elizabeth. Queen Elizabeth. Yeah. Queen Elizabeth. What is that? Wait, that way. It's a ship. Now, what is it? Is it Queen Elizabeth or is it a ship? Is it Queen Elizabeth or is it a ship? Yes. It is Queen Elizabeth. And yes, it is a ship. This is a lot of what it's like to see what we're talking about today in this concept of election and free will. There's two sides to a coin. There's two sides to the, pers- to the situation. There's two different perspectives on the same topic. They're both right. Number one, there's God's perspective. God's perspective. You know what? God knows everything. Does he know everything? The Bible says he sees the end from the beginning. He knows what will happen in every person's life on earth tomorrow as if it is right now. He is not limited by time and space like we are. We don't get that. We can't get it because it's beyond us. Somehow 60 years from now to God is today. How does that make any sense? I don't know. But he's limitless, he's timeless, and everything he knows, everything. He has eternal character that gives him this foreknowledge because he knows tomorrow as if it's today. And he sees the outcome, and to him the outcome is as real from tomorrow as it is today. So he sees what will happen tomorrow because to him it's not tomorrow. To him it uh, just is because there is no tomorrow with God. It's just all now, somehow. I don't figure that out, but I'm not God, right? So from his perspective, his foreknowledge, he knows everybody. Jacob, the younger, will, will, will be the leader of the older Esau. Why? Because he knows from his foreknowledge, because he's not limited by time and space, how it's going to turn out. Does that make sense? Okay. Now there's a term they throw around in theological circles about this. It says this, his foreknowledge is not causative. What that means is his foreknowledge doesn't force it to happen. 
It's just a sense of his being, who he is. He knows what will happen because he's not limited by time and space. And so his foreknowledge, he knows, but his foreknowledge doesn't force it to happen. His foreknowledge is not causative. Now look at the other side of the coin for a minute. He looks at it and he sees Queen Elizabeth. We look at it and we see a sailing ship. Man's perspective. Guess what? Hate to pop your bubble no matter how wonderful you think you are. You're finite. We have incredible limitations as people. We don't know the end. Before the Packer game started yesterday, nobody knew on earth who would win. Now, Jeff Drake predicted it. Where's Jeff? I said, we're going to bring Jeff, Jeff up from now on and have him be a prophet and prophesy. Because he was laughed at yesterday when he said they'd win by at least 10 points. I think somebody accused him of being on drugs is what it really was. And it was a little more than 10 points, wasn't it, Jeff? A little bit more. Um, from man's perspective, we have absolutely no idea of the end. We don't even know what's going to happen in a football game. You know? But we can hear a call from God to come to Jesus. We can feel that pulling. And we can respond to that call or we can reject that call because he gives us a very real choice. He says, hear it, believe, and confess. But we can say, I hear it, but I choose not to believe and confess. Now, God may know the outcome, but we don't know the outcome. Sure, he knows what's going to happen, but just because he knows it doesn't mean he's forcing it to happen. I know if my kid puts his hand on the burner of the stove, he will get burned. He will get blisters. I know that's going to happen. doesn't mean I put his hand and I forced it on the burner. You see the difference? It doesn't mean I'm forcing it, holding it down and saying, I'm going to hold it until it gets burned. His foreknowledge is in causative. And when we hear the voice saying, come, we have a choice. Do I respond to it or do I not? So friends, it's like a two-sided coin. Both can be true. It really is Queen Elizabeth and it really is a sailing ship. Both are true. Neither one of them was wrong. Both are true. Look from one perspective and you see one side of the coin. And you look from the other perspective and you see the other side of the coin. Now admittedly, friends, it's a mystery. It's all right to say it's a mystery. My finite brain can't comprehend exactly how these two concepts can mesh. And I am absolutely fine with that. And you can be fine with that. Why? Because his ways are as high as our ways as the heavens are above the earth. He's infinite and we're finite. It's a mystery. And that's why theologians haven't been able to really agree on this for thousands and thousands of years. And I fully believe, friends, when it comes to salvation, when it comes to our lives and figuring out how this meshes, I believe about me. I believe that I would never have become a Christian if God had not chosen me, if God had not elected me, if he had not drawn me, but the Father had drawn me to Jesus. He did it in me. He did it in me. I can't explain why I felt drawn to Jesus when seemingly hundreds of my family and friends didn't feel and don't feel drawn to Jesus. I can't explain that. And I also believe based on Scripture that I was saved when I bowed my heart to that drawing and asked Jesus into my life and asked Him to forgive me of my sins. And I made Him the Lord and Savior of my life. I needed to respond. And I could have, and I still can, receive it or reject it. I still can say I want it or I don't want it. Because he gives us a choice. 
He gives us a choice. His foreknowledge is not causative. He says, you have a choice. I believe based on Scripture that anyone else, anybody on the planet, who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. God may know the end result, but we don't. So in the sense of looking at the coin from our side, we have a free will. We've got to make a choice. God's perspective, he knows the end from the beginning. He knows what the outcome is going to be, but he doesn't force it. It's a two-sided coin. We can't figure it all out, but we can be okay with that. Because you know what I know about God? He is a big, trustworthy God. Amen? He's a big, trustworthy God. Two sides to a coin. Now here's my last comment on this before we close. In the church world, we love to take topics like this and allow them to polarize us. Well, in my church, we're Calvinists. What we've been talking about is two terms, Calvinism and Arminianism. Ever hear those terms before? That's what we've been talking about. I'm a Calvinist. You ungodly wretch. I'm an Arminian. You know? It's divided the church world for thousands of years. You know who wins when we divide the church? The devil. The devil wins. Now, I'm not about unity at any cost, but I'm about unity based on the scriptures. And unity based on the scriptures, at times we say, you know what? Some things we have a different perspective on. We're not going to 100% understand it. And if we can't understand it 100%, guess what? We will not agree 100% then. That makes sense? If it's not so crystal clear that we can all just say this is exactly what it means, then there's going to be an opportunity to, to um, have different perspectives. And here's my challenge to us. We can't speak for other churches, but for this church family today. Don't let these issues divide you from one another or divide you in the church community. You know what happens when people have these conversations with me? You know, I know my scripture, I think, really well. I'll talk to them. I don't argue. And when they want to get into an argument, I say, you know what? This is what I use all the time. Theologians who are a lot smarter than me have been trying to figure this out for thousands of years, and they didn't figure it out. And I'm not as smart as them, and if they didn't figure it out, I'm not going to figure it out. So let's just agree to disagree. That's all right to say that. We're, in the end, we understand this. We have to receive Christ to get saved, right? And they, everybody understands that. So there's all kinds of topics that have the opportunity to divide. There's issues on, you know, what does it mean to be filled with the Holy Spirit and, and uh, you know, how is somebody saved and when should be baptism, what mode of baptism can it be? All those things that theologians have been arguing about for thousands of years. And I say this, let's major on the majors. Major, you must be born again. Let's major. Let's major on that stuff. Be filled with the Holy Spirit. That's major stuff. And let's not fight about the rest within the church family or outside of the church family. Because the only one who wins when we fight is the devil. And this is what he loves to do. He goes, I don't have to blow up churches. I don't have to burn them down. Because he knows he burns them down, it actually causes revival fires to spark in our hearts. He goes, I just got to keep them in that little building and let them fight with each other. Let them fight over stuff that's not important, whether it's theology or styles of worship. Well, I just don't like when you sing 19, or, you know, a song from 1910, 40, whatever, you know, that Jimmy Swaggart would have been up here. Woo, you know, Jesus on the main line, you know, um, that kind of a song. I just don't like that. Oh, you're not on the, it's not on the fish, so I don't listen to it. Don't play those dumb games. 
We're a family. Different opinions, different likes, different dislikes. We're unified among the, around the main things. And together we're moving forward to, tr- to, to allow God to change us and to use us to completely win this county for Christ. That's why we exist. Amen? Amen. You know what, friends? Let's stand together this morning.